couldn't believe his ears what his wife Leslie was telling him. I have come to follow Jesus, she said. Lee's thoughts were, Jesus? We never believed in him. Church? We never went to church. The Bible? That's a group of fairy tales and stories that we know, Leslie, aren't true. Their discussion turned into a debate, a debate into a dialogue, a dialogue into an argument and fights. Lee couldn't believe his ears. Leslie, we had walked this road together, and now you had fallen to this notion, this fable, that Jesus is God, that he's our Savior, that we need him to save us from our sins. Lee knew that this wasn't true. As an investigative journalist for a Chicago Tribune newspaper, he knew how to seek out the truth. He knew to find the evidence that would tell his wife that this fool's errand she was on needed to come to an end. For the next year, Lee would use all of his investigative journalist skills and look far and wide, seeking to disprove, to bring doubt back into the mind of his wife. But even greater than that, he had told his bosses at the newspaper, there's a lot of people like my wife giving themselves to this thing called Christianity, and I want to prove without a shadow of a doubt that their claims are wrong. So talking with the world's greatest skeptics, the world's greatest atheists and agnostics, Lee went on a journey only to find out at the end of his journey he found Jesus. He found Jesus. The story of Lee Strobel, the writer from the Chicago Tribune, is told in his books, The Case for Christ. That story would be told of how a skeptic, a doubter, a non-believer would turn to utter devotion in God and in Christ, his Savior. Lee would write books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter. He would write these two doubters and skeptics alike, and it would sell millions of dollars, and now he preaches and proclaims the message that he doubted and disbelieved for so long, he and his wife, Leslie, now pastor and serve the God whom they believe with all devotion. You see, Lee's story is a story for many, moving from doubt to devotion. But can we say that that storyline of Lee's was not the beginning? He wasn't the first doubter to become devoted in their following of Jesus Christ. Maybe that award or that uh, significant title goes to the next disciple that we're gonna look at in our study under the heading, Follow Me. For the summer, you and I are going on this journey where we are going to get introduced and maybe reintroduced to those first followers of Jesus. There were 12 of them. Last week we learned about Peter, and today we're going to learn about Thomas. Thomas is in that second group of disciples. The first being Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the closest companions of Jesus, the ones that the Bible dedicates most time and attention and verbiage to. But then there's the second group of disciples. In that group would be Judas, 
and Thomas and a couple others. Today we come to the subject matter, to the life and times of Thomas. And as we did last week, and as we will throughout this series, we will look at these disciples, we will examine their lives, because they serve as examples for us. We're going to examine these examples wanting to emulate the good that they did because they were transformed by Jesus. We want to be transformed by Jesus and live out these changes and transformations as we come to grips, as we come face to face with Jesus, that we might live just as they did. Well, Thomas is known for his mistake. How would you feel if all, you knew, all people knew about you was your one big mistake? Your one big faux pas, your one big time where you stepped up to the plate and only struck out. Thomas is known for his doubt. In fact, when we talk about people doubting, we call them doubting Thomases. And many of them don't even know where that comes from. They don't even know the scripture of John 20 where we'll find ourselves today. They know nothing about it. He is so synonymous with doubting because he doubted seemingly at the worst possible time. So we're going to deal with Thomas, and in doing so, we're going to deal with this issue called doubt. Let's define it first. Doubt is the sentiment behind words like how or why. It has been defined as an uncertain wavering in belief and conviction. It is a lack of certainty. Some of you find yourself there this morning. You are struggling with conviction. You're wavering in your belief about a many, many things. You lack the conviction that you hope for. And so here we are going to see a disciple who lacked that and then found it through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Now, doubt leads to something else. But many times we make them synonymous of one another. Doubt, when left to incubate, left to bake in the oven, if you will, will lead to disbelief, but they're different. Doubt is an uncertainty. Disbelief is the deliberate denial and resistance to a truth that leads to disobedience and rebellion. Disbelief is always condemned in the Bible. Doubt, there's, there's this like kind of allowance for us to live for a short time in doubt to ask questions. God likes it when we ask questions of him, when we're not sure. But the Bible also says in the book of James that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. And as we ask God, we should not doubt that. And then he says this, to doubt is to be tossed like waves to and fro. So the idea of doubting is to vacillate between two opinions, what we know to be true and what we are tempted to believe might not be completely true or accurate. In fact, we all come with our issues of doubt. In fact, one writer put it this way when he said this, don't give us your doubts, give us your certainties, for we have doubts enough of our own. Today I want to give you certainty that hopefully will cause your doubts to disappear. Well, where do we doubt? Write these down in your outline. Maybe you'll find yourself living in one of these places. 
doubts, we doubt our feelings. Maybe there's a, a couple here dating. And they're wondering, maybe quietly, maybe together, is this for real? Is this going to be forever? And maybe we're doubting something about the other or whatnot. Maybe it's in a relationship and we're doubting, do we really feel this way? Is this true? Number two, we doubt with regards to our families. Parents doubt, are our kids ever gonna figure it out? Are they gonna uh, always be immature? Are they gonna move to maturity? There are some in marriages right now that are doubting whether their marriage is going to last because of something the other has done. And there's lots of doubts surrounding our families. Probably the place where we doubt the most is the future. Because the Bible says, and Jesus says, no man knows what a day might bring. We start doubting. Is tomorrow going to be better than today? What if this happens? What if that happens? And we doubt the future. In fact, doubting comes when we talk about money, our finances. Will I have enough? Is there enough to retire? What about if this issue happens or that? Will my money be enough? Some of you are looking at your bank account and doubting you're going to get to a next paycheck. There's a lot of doubts in our world. Now, there's some kissing cousins to doubt. And maybe you're saying, well, I don't think I doubt much. Well, let me ask you this. Do you worry are you anxious? Anxiety and worry come seemingly on the heels of doubts. We doubt in the moment, we worry and are anxious from that point on. So if you find yourself worrying and anxious, I want you to connect it to and ask, what am I doubting about God and his word? What am I doubting about his promises as a Christ follower that caused me to doubt a great many things? Now, right away, I want to be careful. Not all doubt is bad. You will see in your email someday, because I know I've gotten it, and myriads of the people in the first and second service had, that a prince from Africa is asking for money. Just wire $1,000 so that he can start this diamond mine where, where this diamonds are plentiful. And once he gets your $1,000, he will bring you back a hundredfold of that money. And right away, you're like, you know what? Here's my routing number. Here's my bank account number. No, doubt says, can I trust it? Can I trust it? Doubt is an alarm that is there to protect you against schemes but you are tempted to allow that alarm to go off and off and off at times it shouldn't, especially, my friends, when it comes to God and his word. It is okay at times to doubt untrusting people. It is not all right to doubt a trustworthy God. This is what we have in our scriptures this morning. This is what we need to grow in is our trust and our fight against doubt when it comes to our faith. That's where we've gotta be most careful. When it comes to our faith, now, the, the Bible is clear that Thomas doubted, and we'll deal with that, but he wasn't the only one. Martin Luther, the reformer, John Calvin, his contemporary, both struggled with doubt. Great preachers like D.L. Moody and Charles Haddon Spurgeon both wrote in their journals and in dialogues with people that doubts about their faith had happened from time to time. 
the great missionary David Livingston had doubts about his effectiveness and, and even his calling at times as he served in far-flung places throughout the world. So we all come to this place. We all come to moments where we doubt. And what we have to ask is, is my doubt turning to disbelief and is my disbelief turning to rebellion against God? To answer that question this morning, we need to understand this disciple, Thomas. So let's begin by developing a relationship with a disciple who doubted. Let's get to know this guy. This Thomas, we know very little about. We don't know where he was born. We don't know how old he is when he starts following Jesus. But here is what we know. The first truth we know, we don't know about mom or dad, but we know this. Thomas was called Didymus. Didymus. The twin, someone already said the answer. They took, stole my thunder. He's a twin. That is, he was born the same day as a sibling. Now, we don't know if they were identical. We don't know any of that. But we know he was known as the twin. There was another one who looked like him. There was another one who shared his birthday. Now, as we look at the scriptures, which we're going to do, we are going to see this character sketch start to be created for Thomas. And you wonder, what kind of guy was Thomas? Remember last week we had impetuous and, and impulsive Peter, strong leader, a guy that wasn't afraid to just do things. Well, that's not Thomas. Thomas is more of a melancholy. He's more of a gloomy individual. I told the first two services this. There's not a better day today in June than to preach on Thomas. Gloomy and dark, kind of rainy. Not completely rainy, just enough to get wet. That's Thomas. Thomas is a guy who sees the glass half empty. Now, modern day Thomases would say we're just being real. We're just a realist. While the Tims and the Peters of the world exaggerate and are far too optimistic, Thomases are realists. To give you a better understanding, maybe this might help, in the storyline of Winnie the Pooh, Thomas is not Tigger, that's who we learned about last week, Thomas is Eeyore. Remember Eeyore? Eeyore talked like this. Oh, Winnie. So when Thomas is talking with Jesus, oh, Jesus. I'm not sure, guys. Some of you are Eeyores. Some of you are married to Eeyores. Some of you have Eeyores as children. Some of you have Eeyores as parents. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow for an Eeyore. Now, that's not bad. It's different. And here's why we know it's not bad. Because Jesus chose Eeyore, Thomas, Didymus, to be one of his followers. He couldn't have been that bad. God was going to do a work, and God wants to do a work in some of our melancholy, glass-half-empty type people. Now, as we do a little more study, a couple other things we need to know about this guy. He's a fisherman. Most commentaries believe he's a fisherman because he's most connected to the fisherman group of the disciples. And then in John 21, verses 1 through 3, Peter says, I'm going back to my job. I'm going to go back to fishing. And it lists all of these guys who go back to their job to fish as well. And Thomas 
is one of them. So most commentaries believe he was a fisherman. Number two, he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 6, verse 13 through 16, names Thomas as one of the 12. But he's more than just simply listed as one of the 12. This guy is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 11, write this down, John chapter 11, we hear this with a storyline that Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, is sick and now he's dead. And the disciples, they hear Jesus say, after four days of saying, no, we're not going to go, no, we're not going to go, the sickness will not end in death, they hear that Lazarus now is dead. And Jesus says, now is the time to go to Bethany and see Mary and Martha and be with Lazarus and his family. And right away we know, if you read the storyline of John, in John chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, and now into 11, there's great confrontation happening. There's fighting going on. The chief leaders and religious leaders of the day want to kill Jesus at this point. And so there's no doubt talk amongst the disciples. Jesus, this may not be the best time. This may not be the best place to go and make a visit. Not now. Things are hot right now near Jerusalem, which Bethany was. Let's, let's stay away for a little longer. Of which in John chapter 11, in the greatest Eeyore voice, Thomas says this to the disciples. Let us go and die with him. He's a realist. We're going to go, and Jesus is going to die, and we're going to die with him. Now, right away you hear that, and you're like, it's kind of a fatalist, defeatist type approach. But I would say this on the flip side, it's pretty resolute. He says, let's go. I'm willing to die with you, Jesus. And so what we see in this disciple is, yes, he's a fisherman. Yes, he's a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, he's a bit of a melancholy. He's a bit of an Eeyore but he's a disciple who's focused in on finding the answers. He's focused in on finding the answers. In John 14, in John 14, Jesus is now on the heels of his passion, uh, of his uh, going to the cross. And on the night that Jesus is about to be betrayed, he says this, believe God and believe also in me. And then he says, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will come back so that you may be with me always. And then Jesus says this, you know the place of where I'm going. And the disciples all go, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Yeah, we know, Jesus. Yeah, we're, rock, we're right, right on with you. We know exactly where you're going. And it is Thomas who says, no. Jesus I don't know what these knuckleheads keep shaking their head yes to I don't know where you're going how can I go if I don't know where you're at and Jesus says I am the way I am the truth and I am the life no one comes to the Father except through me it is Thomas's honest question 
seeking to understand, seeking to get the answer that brings what I think is one of the most promising and most wonderful passages of Scripture. So here's this melancholy, here's this pessimist, here is this, this fisherman who's a follower of Jesus Christ, glass half empty, kind of fatalistic, maybe more realist, who's focused in on finding the answers, and when it finally dawns on him that Jesus is all that Jesus says he is, Thomas goes farther than any disciple does in the rest of his life. Thomas would head out to the east after Jesus ascends to heaven. On his missionary journey, he would go through Iraq and Iran, and he would make his way all the way to the nation of India. And for 40 years, for an entire generation after Christ uh, is gone, Thomas devotes himself to the preaching and proclamation of an entire country. And this is what writers say about him. It says the following, Thomas, who had so fervently proclaimed his unbelief or doubt, carried the Christian message of love and forgiveness to the ends of the earth in his generation. More specifically, it was to a land of dark people he was sent, to clothe them by baptism in white robes. His grateful dawn dispelled India's painful darkness. It was Thomas's mission to espouse India to the one begotten, that is Jesus. This writer says, the merchant, the individual who isn't from India, who shows up in India, is blessed for having so great a treasure. Odessa, that's a city in India, thus became the blessed city by possessing the greatest pearl India could yield. Thomas works miracles in India. And at Odessa, Thomas is destined to baptize peoples perverse and steeped in darkness, and that in the land of India. That was written 300 years later by a guy named St. Ephraim. Now here's the storyline. Thomas goes to India, preaches, he has a revival breakout in Odessa, India. This revival is so strong. Listen to me. The preaching of Thomas is so strong and pervasive in India that when the British come to colonize India hundreds of years later, thinking they're bringing Christianity to this dark world of India, they find a church named after Thomas. And they're like, wait a minute. How were you guys Christians? We're the first Christians to come. And they said, no, generations ago, one of disciples of Jesus, Thomas, came and preached us Christ, and we've been believers ever since. God was going to use this man and change this man and he would do so. And listen, what we want to do is we want to look at their example as disciples and we want to see Christ transforming power in them because there are some Eeyores and pessimists and Thomases who are doubting right now and God wants to change your doubt and turn it into great devotion. To do so, we need to learn from Thomas's example and we need to defend against the risks surrounding the downward spiral of doubt. Can I just ask a quick question? I've done this now twice. Did I read the scripture, John 20, to you guys? No, okay, let's read John 20 then. It was way back there, and I'm like, I thought we read it, but we hadn't. So let's read it. John 20, starting in verse 19. 
okay? On the evening of that day, that's Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors are being locked where the disciples are for the fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they had seen the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, the twin, was not with them. If you underline in your Bible, that would be a great place to underline. Was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And notice, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put on your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. Some translations say do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then as if there's this teaching moment, the apostle John writes this to end the chapter. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you, who, doubting Thomases of the 21st century, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now that we know Thomas who doubted, now we're going to look at his life in this passage and we're going to see how we are to defend against the risks that surround the downward spiral of doubts. Where did he go wrong? What warning signs were there that maybe we should be taking notice of so that we will not go the way of Thomas in doubt and disbelief? Number one, write this down. It begins by desertion. Doubt begins by desertion. Now, Thomas is the only doubter in the midst. All of the disciples, all 12 of them, including Peter, doubted the veracity, that is the truthfulness of Jesus' claims. Jesus had declared to all the 12, I'm gonna go to the cross, I'm gonna die for the sins of mankind, and then I'm gonna go to the grave, and on the third day I'll be raised from the dead. He said it in so many different ways, he communicated it so many different times, and all the disciples, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I believe, I believe, I believe, then Jesus is arrested, Jesus is tried, Jesus is beaten to an inch of his life, Jesus is then taken to Calvary where he is put on a cross. For a handful of hours he dies a slow and agonizing death 
And with each one of those moments, the disciples are growing deeper and deeper into their doubts. And they're being tempted to disbelieve all that Christ had told them. Friends, doubt happens in our lives, listen to me, especially when it comes to our faith. This is where I'm speaking about our doubt. In our faith, when we allow present circumstances to upstage biblical truth. So if you're struggling with doubt and you're saying, wait a minute, how is this happening? You're allowing your present circumstances in the moment to upstage biblical truth. Truth is back there, Present circumstances are here. So you're seeing your present circumstances. You're hearing your present circumstances. And just this faint voice reminds you of what Jesus said before. But the amplification is your present moments. So the disciples, they're seeing and hearing all that's happening with them in that moment that they are having drowned out the truths of Scripture. And because of that, their doubt causes them to run. Doubt will cause you to desert the one who has promised you so many good things because your present circumstances are pushing you away from Christ. So they all run away. Now, to boot, Thomas seemingly has gone even longer because Jesus appears on Easter Sunday night He appears to the ten, minus Judas, who has now gone and ended his life, and Thomas, and Thomas, we don't know why he's gone. It just says he's not there. He could have been out doing a grocery run. He could have been on the lookout to see where the Roman soldiers were. He could have have been out preaching Christ. It doesn't seem like it would be the case, but we aren't told why he's there, so I want to give him the benefit of the doubt he may have been doing something good. Or could it be that because he's such a pessimist, because he's such a fatalist, because he's such a melancholy, because he's an Eeyore, he just wanted to be alone. How many of you, when you're filled with doubts, you don't want to be around anybody? I just want to be alone. I want to sulk. I want to lament. I don't want anybody else around. Can I tell you something that I think is really important? You are combating doubt right now where you're seated. Did you know that? You made a decision this morning. I'm going to go to God's house. I'm going to be with God's people where they're going to see God's songs, pray God's prayers, and listen to God's word being preached. And in doing so, the Bible says that when we gather together, the book of Hebrews says, we stir up in one another, we spur on one another to love and good deeds. Literally, that word there is we agitate one another. We agitate one another. I was telling one of my employees at my catering, we were barbecuing this last week, and we were uh, doing a lot of cooking, and I said, we need to rake the coals. And that word there for Hebrews is literally what we do. We take our rake and we agitate the coals. Why? Because the coals, as they burn, the dust of the once burning embers now is just dust crowding, covering the flame. 
And we want to get as much fire out of those coals as we can. So we rake, we agitate the coals. Brothers and sisters, we show up to church to agitate in one another the doubts and dust that the world's brought on us in this last week. And so if you go a week without it, you say it was just a week. Well, a little more dust got on you. And then you go another week and more dust. And before you know it, if you don't agitate at all, the, hot, the heat from the coals is gone because the dust has shrouded it. So coming to church, being with God's people, being in small group, participating where God's word is being preached, God's songs are being sung, God's prayers are being prayed, is stirring us up where on your checklist, if you want to evaluate the church, do this as you're leaving. Ask this question, do I have more doubts leaving this place about Christ and my walk with him or less? Part of the reason why I preach with this kind of passion, with this kind of excitement, is to agitate, to uproot the doubts in your mind that I've spent a week focusing in on this subject matter in this text, and I sit there and say, I have come to realize afresh and anew that Jesus is altogether trustworthy. Why would we doubt him? Why would we doubt? And I proclaim as if my hair's on fire <laughs> that you do the same, that you believe the same way, and that the wavering of your convictions as you hear the word preached, as you see the examples of the disciples, and you see the transforming work of Christ, that you would say, I believe that Jesus is my Lord. He is my God. And so I can stand with conviction when the doubts from the world come again and again. Don't desert the assembling together. Thomas did, and for eight days, he would languish in his doubts. Desertion, delay, delay. Eight days. I wonder if the disciples all took their turns in trying to convince Thomas of what they had seen. We've seen Jesus. We've seen his hands. We've seen his side. I wonder if there was this pot of money they were setting aside. I know disciples don't gamble, okay? But if they had, okay, whoever convinces Thomas gets this. And I could hear Andrew going and sitting down with Thomas. They're sharing a meal, and Thomas is like, you know, he's all depressed and all down. Everybody else is excited. They had seen Jesus. They had experienced the Holy Spirit. Man, things are going well. And Andrew sits down with Thomas and says, you know, I know Peter talked with you. But let's be honest, Peter's an exaggerator, right? Always exaggerating things, Thomas. But Thomas, you know me. I'm even killed Andrew. Even at times, I'm kind of a bit melancholy like you, Andrew. And I want you to know, maybe he put his arm around Andrew and said, I saw Jesus. But for eight days, what we have is desertion, delay, denial, denial. Even after the closest followers of Jesus, his closest associates of Thomas's, tell him that he can believe, notice in verse 25 he says, I won't believe. I won't believe. You don't know, listen to me my friends, again, doubt isn't inherently sinful, but be careful. It's kind of like anger. 
You don't know where anger is righteous and the line where it becomes unrighteous. It happens so quickly. Doubt can move so quickly because of worry and anxiety to disbelief. You might not even know it. Here, in a matter of a verse, he goes from doubt to disbelief. I will not believe. I will not believe. So you wake up in the middle of the night and you have an anxious thought, you have a worrying thought, you have a doubt about the future, about your faith, about your family, about your finances. You have that, and it's okay, we're finite and flawed people, we will have those moments of doubt. But then, we need to replace that doubt with the scriptures, and the scriptures say, I'll provide for you, I'll take care of you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Even the trials you should consider joy, because I'm gonna use them for your good and for making you more like my son, Jesus Christ. And we hear that, but worry and anxiety flood our minds, and what do we say? I will not believe the promises and precepts of God. I will believe my doubts. And in that moment, my friends, we are saying, I will not believe. I will not believe. I deny it. And some of us right now are saying, well, my doubts are totally um, not sinful. And I would say be careful because at some point God's word has been brought to bear in, in our lives and at some point we chose to believe our doubts instead of the declarations of Christ. This will inevitably lead to a demand. Notice Thomas tells the disciples as well as God because God's there. Here are my demands. I want to see you. I want to touch you. I want you on my terms. That's what Thomas says to Jesus when Jesus isn't there. Have you done this before? Jesus, I'll believe you if you do a miracle. Jesus, I'll believe you if you get me out of this situation. Jesus, I'll believe you if you show yourself to me. Jesus, I'll believe you if you fix all of my problems. There's the demands. And those are bland, demands of disbelief. And God doesn't need to do any of that. God says, are you kidding me? I created the world. Don't you see the world? I created you. Well, you thought you came out of nothing? I made you. But we demand. And this leaves us at a very, very bad place. So this leads us to what do we do to change it? We've got this example. We've examined it. We've seen where Thomas has gone awry. What do we do to fix it? We deepen our resolve to disarm the doubts of life. I don't want to live in doubt. I don't want to live in disbelief. If that's the cry of your heart, then write these things down. This is where we've got to be. Number one, we've got to draw close to Christ. Thomas's doubts end when Jesus gets close. Can I tell you this? The closer you are to Jesus and his word, I'm telling you, the doubts are gonna have a hard time getting oxygen. And so if you're struggling with doubts, I don't judge you, but I say this, get close to Jesus. Get close to Jesus, because when we're close to Jesus, notice there's this reference to the Holy Spirit as we draw near to Jesus, we have now what the disciples had temporarily, we have permanently, and that's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As we draw near to Jesus, the Holy Spirit fills in us 
all these fruits of the Spirit, all of these evidences of the Spirit. And as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what you're not filled with? Doubts, disbelief. And so we, as Thomas needs to do, we need to draw near to Jesus. Now here's the amazing thing. Thomas doesn't draw near to Jesus. Jesus draws near to Thomas. Jesus shows up and gets close to Thomas. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I want you to know Jesus wants nothing more than get close to you. And Jesus comes and he shows up right before Thomas. And notice, he doesn't beat up Thomas. For the doubters in our, in our place today, God, God doesn't want to beat you up. He wants to get close to you. Like a loving parent, he wants to take away those doubts, take away that disbelief, and fill you with devotion and dedication to him. So draw close to him. And when Christ draws near to you, don't push him away, but receive him. Number two, depend on the demonstrations given to us. Verse 27, what evidence did Thomas have that Jesus was who he said he was? Let's go down them. Number one, he had the teachings of Christ. He had preached, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. He had proven it through his miracles that Thomas had seen. The one that's most evident is that Thomas had seen with his own eyes that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So Thomas knew firsthand that Jesus had the power of resurrection. He still didn't believe. He heard Christ preach. He saw Christ do great miracles. Now he has the third demonstration is that his closest associates, his friends, the other disciples who were just as downtrodden and disbelieving as he was, now is saying, we have seen the Christ. And he still says, I won't believe. And then Jesus has to stand right in front of him, and he has to touch him, he has to feel the wounds, and it is there that Thomas says, I believe. Many doubters will say this, if I could only touch Jesus, if I could only see Jesus with my eyes, if I could only see the miracles, if I could only have heard Jesus preach, then I would be dedicated, then I would be devoted. But notice what John says that Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas sees Jesus and he finally dispels his doubt and disbelief once and for all. And look at what he declares, my Lord and my God. You are who you say you are. You can do what you say you can do. If we don't see God, if we don't see Jesus for who he is, God incarnate, then we will never bow down to him in lordship and commit and give our lives. The only reason why Thomas would go and preach to India is he knew without a shadow of a doubt who he believed in. And he trusted that. And he declared his allegiance to God in that. My Lord and my God. So for the doubters in this place, you say, sure is nice for Thomas to have gotten all that. What am I supposed to do? Now Jesus, notice the end of the chapter. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you and me 
in our doubts and in our disbelief that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What John is saying is this is all we need. This book will take care of our doubts. If we will dedicate ourselves to what is written in this book, the eternal words of Jesus Christ our Lord, if we will believe the doubts will go away. And we're more blessed than those that saw him and experienced. We're more blessed than Thomas because we believed without seeing. God is in this with us. He says, if you will trust me and you will obey these words, then I will meet you in your doubts. I will meet you in your disbelief. And I will lead you to a devotion that will change your life and will change the world around you.